Can I go pulpit mic? Yeah. Um, the Bible is God's inspired, uh, recorded word of how he has acted in human history. What we could say, this is his story. And he inspired it and he wrote it and he gave it to us, whether it's in written form like the preacher has or on your phone. It's still God's word. The one theme, if there was one theme, just to summarize it all, it would be the word redemption. And so this year as we look to the Bible, I don't want you to lose sight of that one theme that is redemption. In fact, today we come to the one story, I hate to say this, that's more important than any of the rest of the stories in all the Old Testament because it is the story of how God redeemed his people from oppression and bondage. And the story that I'm going to tell today in the next few moments is the story that the Jewish people told of what God did at a point in their history, in a specific place. This is what God did. And they, they talked about it. Even though hundreds and thousands of years passed, they would say, no, this was the point and this was the place where God we were in bondage. We were slaves. And God with his mighty hand came and he took us out of that place. And he brought us to a place that flows with milk and honey. And so the story that I tell you today is the story of the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, whatever the, your name we might call them. And I guess as I, I talk about this today, I want you to ask, what is my story of redemption? What is it that God did for me at a point in time in a specific place where God changed everything? As I talk for the next 30 minutes or so. That's what I want you to have in your head. What is my story of redemption? How did God save me? Because quite honestly, we come to a pivotal point in the Old Testament in the story as we look at one big story of what God did and uh, we come to the point and the place of redemption the Hebrew people were in bondage in Egypt and God did for them what they could not do for themselves. I guess if there's really one thing I, I want you to kind of think about this, and I know this is a story most of you have heard many times. I want you to have this idea. If I don't get this idea across and I've missed what I came here to tell you, God did it. Only God could do what I'm going to describe today. The Jewish people could not do it for themselves. It was with God's mighty hand that he delivered them. And at the end of the sermon, we're going to talk about the same for you and I. Today, thousands of years later, that there is something 
that God needs to do for us that only he can do. And it is also to redeem us, to save us, to deliver us from bondage. God had prepared for this day that I will describe here in just a moment in the story. And our, our verses are Exodus 5 through 13. So, Brother Barry, have you read, did you read this week Exodus 5 yes, through 13? Now, Brother Barry's on me. Uh, now, each week we are doing a handout kind of gives you the gist of things. And at the bottom of that page, it'll say what we're going to be covering um, next week. And theoretically, my thought was, you know, y'all read up on that so you kind of know what we're talking about. Well, the problem is this week we're going from Exodus 14 to Numbers 8. Now, Brother Barry's already stressing about this. You know, that's a, that's a big old swap of Scripture. That's... Exodus 14 through Exodus, Leviticus, and then partway through Numbers. So um, some weeks we're going to have some little sections of Scripture. Other weeks we're going to go, whoo, we need to see the big picture. And we're going to talk about the law and how God revealed himself next week. And there's a lot of Scripture. Brother Barry, I, I'm just going to give you a pass. Brother Barry wants to build an altar and... I've assured some new people that are coming to the church that we no longer sacrifice chickens as we used to do in the past. So, Brother Barry, I'm just going to have to say no to that, unless it's fried chicken, which is not on the menu today, but it's baked potatoes for our family lunch. Anyhow, back to the story. <clears throat> hmm. God had prepared the Hebrew people for the day of deliverance by raising up a man named Moses, the deliverer. Um, their redemption comes at a point in time in a specific place. And I want you to get this idea. I want to show you the, uh, the timeline. And it's obviously on your sheet from last week. It's the same as this week's, and it will be the same as next week's. Mm, maybe even the week after that. It'll all be the same timeline. But... Um, Peyton, if we can put that timeline on the screen. Um, a specific time. And God had a purpose and a plan for each of these times. Uh, from the time they went to Egypt to the time that Moses was born, it's 350 years. And in the midst of that time, God was doing something um, according to his plan. And part of it didn't appear to be very good. Because it was during that time that a Pharaoh rises that did not know Joseph and they lose their favored status and they grow to such an extent that they are a threat to the Egyptians and the Pharaohs began to oppress the Jewish people about the time that Moses is born. Moses' life is broken down in 40-year segments. Hope you get this even from last week. Moses is going to be 120 years old when he dies. For the first 40 years of his life, God is preparing him. Raised in a Hebrew home as a little, little boy. And then raised in Pharaoh's household and receives the education so that he'll be prepared to lead the people as he needs to out of Egypt. From 40 to 80, Moses is in the wilderness tending sheep. And he must have thought, what is this about? <laughs> But someday he was going to have another 40 years 
of wandering through that wilderness with about two million griping people. You, you're going to need some preparation for that. And so for 40 years, from 40 to 80, Moses is trained by God to live in the wilderness as he tends the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. Uh, during this time, the Jewish people have grown from 70 people to over 2 million people, but they found themselves in bondage. It is during this time that the, uh, the, the Jewish people, uh, the, the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, developed their identity during this time. It's kind of strange. But they go to Egypt and Israel has 12 sons and they, these tribes, these 12 sons develop their own family structures and identity is the only thing I can think of. In fact, last week we, we showed you a sheet that has the 12 tribes of Israel and this is very significant that you get this in mind. If you don't have last week's sheet, it's out in the foyer. If you ever aren't here and you want to access it, uh, it's on a link. It's, you can download it on the church's website under this particular sermon and look at it. But it, for the days ahead, we need to understand the 12 tribes of Israel because they're not necessarily the 12 sons of Israel. There are, there are 12 boys. Mm, there's at least one daughter that I remember. Maybe another daughter's. But 12 boys of Israel. Um, and Byron described that in his sermon but several things of note about those 12 tribes. Moses become, comes from the tribe of Levi. And he, um, this tribe is different than the other tribes because it is the priests that come from Levi. You need to get that in your brain. The tribe of Levi. Here's the other thing. When they go into the promised land, I'm just telling you what's coming. Levi does not get an allotment of land. So you go, wait a second, Levi pulls out, but there's still 12 allotments of land. How does that happen? Well, Joseph, who is in a favored position, receives a double blessing as the favored son. And his, there's not a, when they come to the land of Israel, uh, Canaan, there's not a tribe of Joseph. Maybe you've never thought about it. Joseph's two sons are Ephraim and Manasseh. And Joseph basically gets a double portion. His two sons become the tribes. And so when you eliminate Levi and you add two sons instead of Joseph, you get, you're back to 12 tribes. The other thing significance that I want you to know is that the line of blessing passes through not Levi, not Joseph, not Ephraim, not Manasseh. But the line of blessing passes through the tribe of Judah. And that was what Israel prophesied in the very beginning. And so God has been working for the time of deliverance. The Exodus is the time of deliverance. Uh, these are approximate dates, but 1445 B.C. So there is a time that God delivers, but there's also a place. I want you to get this also. Uh, can we look at the map? Uh, the Moses map. Um, how many of y'all are map people? Map people. Huh, yeah, four of us. Okay, that's all right, some of y'all. I'm a visual learner, so I, I need to see this. And I want you to know that there is geography uh, to what we talk about today. And, and the land of 
of Canaan is, is upright. The land of Goshen, you can kind of see it on the map, is the northeastern part of Egypt. The reason that is significant, one thing, it was very fertile. Joseph was honored and given the best of the land, and because it was the best of the land and it was so fertile, the Israelite people could grow. There was physical substance for them to grow over 350 years from 70 people to over 2 million people because the land was that bountiful, the land of Goshen. Like my Aunt Sue used to say, you know, how people say different things. Aunt Sue would say, land of Goshen. <laughs> anyhow, Aunt Sue. Well, maybe nobody else. Yeah, anyhow, that's just me. Land of Goshen. I'm sorry. It's very fertile. But here's the other thing about the land of Goshen. It is strategically located. It is the place where an invading army would come to first if they were going to attack Egypt. And the reason the Pharaoh in Moses' day had a problem is because not only was he concerned that the Israelites had grown to this huge people group, nation, over two million people, but the other thing, when the invading army came from the northeast, they were going to come, and if the Israelites flipped, they were going to open up the doors, flip their allegiance to the invading army. They were going to open the doors for that army just to come march in to Egypt. And that's why the pharaohs were threatened by the size and the strategic location of, of the Hebrew people in the land of Goshen. The other thing of note today, some of you don't care about this, and that's all right, is that when the Israelites left Egypt, Days after that, they crossed the Red Sea and then they came to Mount Sinai where God had appeared to Moses. God appears to Moses and then he says, you're going to go get the children of Israel and you're, before you go to the promised land, you're going to bring them to this mountain to encounter me and that's next week. We're going to encounter God at Mount Sinai and he's going to, he's going to make himself known. The traditional site for Sinai is in the, in the uh, V-shaped land there that's the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, but that's not where Midian was. When we begin to think about it, and actually that tradition starts back in the 3rd century A.D. with Const Emperor Constantine, and they identified a mountain they designated as Mount Sinai. It became the traditional site. Midian, uh, oh my, I'm sorry, geography. I'll be off this in just a second. Please indulge the pastor. The Red Sea is the big sea at the bottom. And there's two fingers to the Red Sea. One is to the left is the Gulf of Suez. And uh, the Suez Canal then was dug from the Gulf of Suez north to get to the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, that couldn't be where the ch children of Israel crossed the Red Sea. I don't know. We'll have to talk about that. Sometime make an appointment with the pastor. I'll talk about that. Couldn't have been. One thing is when they dug up the Suez Canal, they didn't find any remains of any chariots or horses or anything. No, and they, they dug that whole section. They would have uncovered it. I think there's strong evidence that they did not cross the Red Sea in the Suez, the Gulf of Suez, 
But the next finger to the right is the Gulf of Aqaba. And uh, interestingly enough, there's evidence that they came to the place. Because here's the thing. Midian is on the east side of the Gulf of Aqaba. It's not in the, the Sinai Peninsula. The Sinai Peninsula was controlled by the Egyptians. There are Egyptian military outposts in Sinai. When Moses murdered the man, is discovered, and he flees, he would not have stayed in Egyptian territory. They were looking for him. He crosses out of Egyptian territory, and he goes to the land of Midian, which is kind of where it says Arabia there, but it actually says Midian there in small letters. And that's where his father-in-law Jethro, in fact, there are uh, archaeological uh, evidence that Jethro, in tradition, that Jethro lived on that side of the Gulf of Aqaba, and Moses is tending in the backside of the desert his father-in-law's sheep, which would have been in the general vicinity. He wouldn't have traveled 100 miles looking for grass. He would have died by then. He wasn't in the Sinai Peninsula. He was in the land of Midian on the east side of the Gulf of Aqaba, and they, there are remains that have deteriorated over the years, but coral has grown on them of chariot wheels, horses' hooves, in a stretch of land about two-thirds of the way up. There's a land bridge actually there that God would have provided. I, I don't know. Google it. Yeah, it's actually there. I don't, I don't know what to tell you to Google, but look at it. If you keep searching, you'll find the evidence that they crossed there, and so Mount Sinai is there in the land of Midian. And it was from there then that they went north after 40 years of wandering um, into the Promised Land. I'm sorry, I spent way too long on that. God redeems from Egypt. And the story that the, the Jewish people tell is the story that is contained in Exodus 5 through 13. And God redeems to show his power. God redeems by his own hand and in his own way. And Moses comes back to the people. If you just read the story, and we're just going to kind of fly over, and I've got one section of scripture to read in Exodus chapter 6. But Moses goes back, and here's the story. He says, let my people go. Guess what Pharaoh says? No, not going to do it. Here's what, it got worse. Not only Moses goes and says, let my people go, and he's doing what God tells him to do. Pharaoh refuses, but Pharaoh says, apparently you people got too much time on your hands. Y'all are being lazy. Y'all got all this time. Y'all wanted to go out in the wilderness and sacrifice to your God. Apparently life's a little bit too easy for you slaves. Therefore, we're just going to, mm, we're going we're gonna to squeeze you a little bit. And there's certain things. I don't have time to talk about it today. And all of a sudden, life gets harder for the Hebrews. And not only is Pharaoh not responding to Moses, but the people began to turn on Moses and say, what is this that you've done to us? We were doing kind of okay, and now you've come back, and you've stirred up trouble, and it's worse for us than it was. And, God, and Moses goes before God and says, what is this? I'm doing what you tell me to do, and now everybody's against me. And God speaks to him. Listen to what he says in Exodus 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand 
he will let them go. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name, Lord, or Yahweh, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people. And I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage I am Yahweh, is what literally the Hebrew says. I am the I am. And I have come to show my mighty hand. You can see it on your sheet, but there are ten plagues. God said, I'm going to demonstrate my power and I'm going to bring you out with my mighty hand. There are ten plagues that God brings. And you can see them. Uh, first thing he does is turn the water into blood. Then frogs are everywhere in the land. Then there's lice. Then flies. Disease on the animals. Boils on human beings. Number seven, a massive hailstorm that destroys whatever is left of the crops. Well, not actually, because then the swarm of locusts come. The ninth one is the three days of darkness at the end. And then finally, we will end this morning, just a few minutes, with the death of the firstborn. God, by his mighty hand, brought ten plagues to humble Pharaoh and to show his great power so that Pharaoh would say, I need you people to get off of my land. <laughs> I am evicting you from the land of Goshen. I don't care where you go, but you better not look at me again. And he's going to change his mind. There's several interesting things. Moses, and we don't have time to look at the detail, but, but Moses goes every time to Pharaoh and announces, here's what God is about to do. He calls it, and then God does it. Now there comes a point at the end where Pharaoh says, I don't want to see your face again. And Moses just sends word. And actually on the last one, Pharaoh is the one who sends word and says, get out. It's interesting, early in the, in the 10, the magicians duplicate what Moses has done through the power of God. It's kind of interesting. But you get to about the third plague, and the, uh, the magicians look at Pharaoh after Moses does that, and they go, uh, that one's of God. We, no, we, we can't touch that one. Mm, no, not going to be able to do that. That one must be of God. And then it's kind of funny. This, oh, I think it's funny. You get to about plague five, and they won't even, it says they could not stand before Moses. 
Well, I think it was, it was the boils on the humans. It was like, no, how are we going to say we all that in a bag of chips and we sitting here with the boils that everyone else is afflicted with? No, we cannot even do it. We're too embarrassed even to show up. No, the magicians said, we out of here. No. And uh, Pharaoh, you know, if you read through those ten plagues, Pharaoh, it's like he starts and he... You know, it's like, oh, that was good. that was bad. You know, good, whatever you want to say. You know, it's like, okay, hey, hey, Moses, okay, get the point. Could you tell the frogs to leave? And so the frogs die, and then when the effects of the plague are over, then Pharaoh will say, ah, that's all right. No, I think I've changed my mind. You can't go. And then there's this kind of this conceding that, that Pharaoh does, and at one point he'll go, uh, okay, okay, no, no, you can go, but I just want the men to go. You're... you're, you're your livestock and the women and children can't go with you. Let the men go out in the wilderness. Moses says, can't do it. Mm -mm. And then a couple plagues later, uh, Pharaoh will say, well, I, I tell you what, you can go with the women and the children and the men, but don't take your flocks with you. Moses says, mm -mm, that's not going to fly either. And then, uh, I don't remember exactly, he keeps conceding at one point, it's the men and the, and the, the flocks, but not the women and children. Well, actually, the first, I'm sorry. First time he says, you can sacrifice, but it has to be in the land. So there's about four rounds of that that Pharaoh tries to bargain with Moses. But every time he changes his mind. And even though he hates the effects of the plagues, and initially he repents, the scripture says that God hardens his heart and he changes his mind until the death of the firstborn. And you know, we could go through these ten and scholars do this. You could, uh, you could look at them and you could attribute these to different things that happened in Egypt with the flooding of the Nile and the frogs come on land and because the frogs die you have lice and then you have flies and because of that you have disease on the animals which creates bulls on humans and then it's the spring of the year when okay you ha it's a bad hailstorm but maybe that was just had natural causes and then for some freakish reason then the the locusts and then I don't know some there's a big dust storm and so we have three days of darkness you could in your mind you could rationalize and you could somehow attribute these things to physical causes until you come to the death of the for the firstborn the tenth plague And there's no way to rationalize that in your brain. That Moses said the firstborn will die. And on that night, the firstborn of every household dies. That was it. And what God told Moses to tell the people, this is it. This is the story of redemption. The month of Nisan, which on your sheet we have, we'll leave that on there for at least another week or two. The calendar of the Jews. Uh, the month of Nisan is the end of March, early April. And God says, this is now going to be the first month of your calendar. Nisan. And he said, on the 10th of Nisan, every household is to take a male lamb, one year of age, without blemish, and set that animal aside. And at sundown on the 14th of Nisan, each household, and if your household isn't large enough to have a lamb, 
then you've got to join with another household because there was no other substitute for this sacrifice. No, it had to be a one-year-old male without blemish. And at sundown of the 14th of Nisan, Moses told the people from God, you kill the, you kill the lamb. And you take some of the blood that's in a bowl with a bunch of hyssop, a plant, and you strike the sides of your door frame of your house. And go into your house and you roast that lamb. And you eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And this will be a memorial for you. You will do this every year from now because God said, I'm about to redeem you. And every year, the 10th of Nisan, you will take a lamb. The 14th of Nisan, you will slay that. And then you will gather in your house. And for seven days, that night you will eat of that lamb and the bitter herbs and unleavened bread. And you will remember that we did not have time for our bread to rise. And we will eat unleavened bread for seven days. And it will be a memorial for my redemption. And so that night they did that. And that night, by the hand of God, the death angel passes across Egypt. And in every household where the blood had not been applied, the death angel takes the firstborn. And the firstborn died. The firstborn dies. But when the death angel came to the Hebrew homes with the blood applied, the scripture says the death angel passed over that house. And the firstborn was spared because the substitute of the lamb and its blood had paid, redeemed the firstborn. And the firstborn lived. And all through the land of Egypt that night, there was crying in every household because the firstborn had mysteriously died. Just what Moses had told Pharaoh was going to happen. And Pharaoh sends word and says, y'all better get out of here. And that night, they were told to eat with their robe on and their belt around their waist and their staff in their hand and their possessions packed up. And when when Pharaoh said, hit the road, two and a half million Hebrew people who had lived in bondage for 430 years leave. Redeemed by the hand of God. Only God could have done it. There was no other way. It is all they had ever known. They not only had to have a leader a deliverer like Moses who would tell the people, but Moses did not deliver the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. Pharaoh was not going to let them go. They were forced slaves who were building projects around Egypt for Pharaoh. They were slaves. They were owned by Pharaoh. Pharaoh was not going to let them go. There was no way they were going to free themselves from bondage, even with the leadership of Moses. Unless God's mighty hand delivered them. And they walk out of Egypt in ranks, actually. Moses organized them. 
And they told that story year after year after year. And God said, every year, you will celebrate the Passover. This is before he's told them about the, the sacrificial system, about the tabernacle that we'll cover next week. All of those things, the ritualistic law, God had made himself known in ways in the past, but this is an event. It is the event of redemption. It is their family story that night. God delivered us from bondage to take us to a land that flowed with milk and honey. God redeems to show his power and by, he does it by his own hand and in his own way. There was no question that day that God had delivered them from their bondage and done for them what they could not do for themselves. The story of the Bible is the story of God's redemption. He does it his way in his own way. It's God's story, not our story. Partly what I'm telling you today is we do not redeem ourselves. We are not able. Fifteen hundred years later, as year by year the Hebrew people told their family story of redemption. Remember there were three promises that God made to Abraham. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make your descendants into a great nation. And I'm going to so bless you that all the families of the world will be blessed. At this point in the story of the Bible throughout the Old Testament, it is the story of how God redeemed the children of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. Until the year 30 A.D. And on the 14th of Nisan, 30 A.D., a Jewish rabbi with not even 12 followers at this point, he gets down that night to 11 celebrates this meal, this family story of redemption on a Thursday night that year, the 14th of Nisan. And as they take of that, Jesus of Nazareth, Rabbi Jesus, who had been with them for three years and had taught them, says to them, in essence, what he says, I will be the Passover lamb that dies and sheds my blood for you. And not only for you, here it is, but all the families of the world. The story of redemption when it came to Jesus was not just about the redemption of the Jewish people. No. No, 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 no. It wasn't the story of the Exodus in 1445. No, this is 1,500 years later. And there was a bigger plan that the blessing through Abraham's line would go into all the families of the world. And Jesus dies as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins 
of the world, which includes me, and it includes you. I took a poll several weeks ago. I don't know, are there any Jewish people here today? No. That's all right. Because that was their story of redemption. And God's story of redemption eventually comes to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Who was that Passover lamb who died for our sins. And here it is, people. He died for all of us. Oh, don't miss this. By faith, we must apply the blood to our lives. I don't know, on that first Passover, a man might have thought, well, you know what, I know that that's what God said, but hey, if there's a death angel coming, bring it on, buddy. I'm big and I'm bad. I can take care of this. No, he would have found out differently that night. God said there was only one way that night. And it didn't have to make sense to them. But God said, I will do things my way and you will see my glory and my power. I am the God who will redeem you. You cannot redeem yourself. Apply the blood. 1,500 years later, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who once for all takes away the sins of the world, sheds his blood. And by faith, when we say, I cannot save myself, but I ask that the blood of Jesus be applied to my life so that someday when the death angel comes, he will see the blood and he will pass over. Because God, out of his love for us, sent not only his firstborn, but his only born, one and only, the only begotten of the Father. You see, it is only through Jesus that we can be made right with God. This book is about Him, not us. You can try to write your own story. You can try to find your own path to heaven to get right with God. God doesn't play like that. God said, I will do it in my own way and I will do it in my power and you will know it is me. Friends, there is only one way of salvation. And that is through Jesus Christ. It's not because the preacher says so today. It's because God says so. And this is his story, not my story. And the only way we have a chance at eternity is that our lives, our story, will fit into his story. Our story will line up. And we will apply the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus and so I ask you again today, what is your story of redemption? And we could have testimonies today and people could share. I want to make sure you know you have a story. And all of our stories have one thing in common. When we couldn't save ourselves, we turned to Jesus.
and through his shed blood we were saved. Amen. Amen. If you'll stand with me this morning. Um, Brother Shane comes and we have our time of invitation. Uh, Brother Byron and myself will be at the front. Uh, wow. Today we want to give you an opportunity to say, I surrender my life to Christ as the only way of salvation. And I want to ask Christ to come in my life and to save me and to apply his blood to the, the bondage and the oppression that has come from my sin. We want to give you an opportunity to do that today as we stand and sing.